0: Yak my name is Borat, and you are listening to A Thinking Basketball, the number seventh podcast in Kazakhstan local sports. Thinking Basketball podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we're going to talk about young prospects Donovan Mitchell and Ben Simmons, but I was preparing for the episode and I I was writing down some ideas and I wrote down five things thinking you know maybe I'll just do sort of a potpourri podcast where I go through some hot topics and my computer auto-corrected this to five thinks and I was like huh my computer knows me really well (laughs) taking a perfectly good English word and moving it over into the thinking domain so we're not going to do five things because I didn't end up coming up with five things to discuss. We're going to talk about the sophomores, but maybe that's something for the future. We'll we'll maybe have a segment where I enumerate through things and call them five things. Anyway, on to today's topic. It was a fun week last week, very fun week. I, uh, I recently did Nate Duncan's podcast where we discussed the best rookies in the league and then... Just this past week, he and Danny LaRue got around to their top prospects under 23 annual list. Also this week, Bill Simmons over on The Ringer wrote a column sort of resurrecting or necromancing his trade value column that he wrote for many, many years where he goes through and he looks at age and contract and player potential and basically ranks the... "Quote unquote trade value of all the players across the league." It's uh, one of my favorite columns back in the day. I think it used to be my favorite basketball column annually that I look forward to. But these uh, these kind of discussions give us a lot of fodder. They're very fun. If you haven't checked out that episode with uh, Nate and I on his podcast, I mean, if you're listening to this, you'll definitely want to check that out. Very fun discussion, but. I wanted to elaborate on things I've said on Twitter this week, about first, first about Simmons's approach. So I realized that this is something that needs to be sussed out further and worthy of me just speaking about it instead of trying to explain it in 280 characters. And then if you guys have further ideas or pushback, I'd love to hear it. But I've read this column that he does for years as I said and he lays out the rules and it's all very clear but I'm realizing I think as a thought experiment it has a fatal flaw it really runs into something that I think actually creates problems in the way he lays out the list right now and even in the discussion around it and I listened to a little of his podcast he kind of had like a companion podcast where he talks about some of the decisions in the list and it becomes apparent because in one area, he'll say one thing, and then with another player, he'll kind of contradict the criteria. So so what do I mean? Okay, here's the criteria. Salaries matter. Would you rather pay De'Aaron Fox $5.5 million a year or Russell Westbrook $35 million a year? Okay, keep, keep that in mind. I'm going to get back to that in a second. Age matters. Would you rather have Fox for the next 15 seasons or Russell for the next five? Also, keep that one in mind. Similarly, contract length matters. The next rule, pretend the league passed the following rule where for 24 hours any player could be traded without cap ramifications, so we don't need to worry about that stuff. Concentrate on degrees. For instance, Ben Simmons and Luka Doncic isn't happening for either side, but Philly at least says, wow, Luka's available? And here's the first fatal flaw, I think. He tends to focus on player A's team and player B's team and, and really telescope on that part of the thought experiment. And I actually think that does a disservice to the thing that guys like dunked on actually hit at, which is the more interesting question. You you want to kind of talk about who's the best player going forward and you maybe can incorporate salary and you certainly incorporate age, but that seems to me to be the spirit of the conversation. And when you only say, look, Dallas is not going to trade Kevin Durant for Luka Doncic. They're not going to give up their future. And that may very well be true. It may be extremely true from Dallas' perspective. We we don't know, but it it seems to make sense. Luka's only 19 years old. But what is left out of that equation is that most of the other contenders in the league would take Kevin Durant... Over Luka Doncic right now. Now people say, well, you only get him for a season. So how do you know he's going to re-sign? Okay. Uh, That's a great question. You don't know he's going to re-sign. But again, what seems to be missing from the conversation is how do you know that Luka Doncic is going to re-sign at the end of his rookie contract? And so what happens a lot is Bill says, oh, you know, would you rather have one year of this guy or 15 years of this guy? And I actually think when you look at it from that lens of, like, contract matters, salary matters, and things of this, and and, and the whims of the player to want to go someplace else, and the culture of the team, all that stuff matters, then you have to also consider the, the possibility that Doncic may leave. You have to consider the possibility that, Doncic may not become an MVP player in that contract, e- even if he is, even if he becomes an MVP level player, how likely is it that in the next three seasons, he'll be at his peak or provide MVP value? And then if something shifts where he decides, you know, I want to play in New York or LA, I want to play in the spotlight, in the glitz and glamour of Hollywood or Manhattan and the Big Apple or something like that. To me, these things constantly seem left out of the equation as being partial toward the younger players, and I think that's reflected in Simmons' list in particular, where he basically populates the top 20, 30 with just a bunch of young names, rookies and second-year guys, and you can go check that list out on The Ringer. Uh, I won't go through the whole thing. But just to give you an example, his top 10 players by trade value, as of right now, he says he'll update it throughout the season, but as of right now, Giannis, one, Anthony Davis, two, Steph Curry, three, LeBron James, four, and then you really start to get to the young players. Luka Doncic, fifth, Joel Embiid, sixth, Nikola Jokic, seventh, Ben Simmons, eighth, Jason Tatum, ninth, then you have Durant, Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Oladipo, Lillard, uh, De'Aaron Fox, 15th, Carl Towns, 16th, Porzingis, 17th, Devin Booker, 18th, and then you go back to Russell Westbrook, Donovan Mitchell, 20th, Jaron Jackson, 21st, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, 22nd, Wendell Carter Jr., 23rd, De'Andre Ayton, 24th, and he rounds out the top 25 with Rudy Govera, veteran. So, I think the reason the list ends up like that is because of the, the sort of bias in the thought experiment to say, I'm only going to think about this from the perspective of Dallas. I'm only going to think about this from the perspective of Sacramento. Well, there's a psychological, there's a very strong psychological phenomenon that occurs where when you buy something and invest in it, you think more highly of it than other people. There's almost no way to get around that. And so if you're constantly saying, how does Sacramento view their prime investment? How does Dallas view its prime investment? How does Utah view its prime investment? Then you're always going to be skewing harder toward those teams. And this is where I think the thought experiment breaks down if you don't do it on a league wide basis. If the thought experiment is, here's my trade value column, and let's say, as an extreme example, all 30 teams in the league just refuse to part with their first round draft pick. They all think they got the best possible player in their first round draft pick. Well, I mean, then what you're supposed to do is have a tie at number one and say the 30 players drafted in last year's draft were all number one because their teams will not trade them under any circumstances. But if you suddenly introduce, of course, this is a extreme argument, but it's trying to illustrate the point. If you suddenly introduce the idea that no, not the team who owns them, the 29 other teams are now presented with an opportunity to acquire players they don't have, and they have to give up the same package for any of those players. All of a sudden, how do they rank those players? Because that will be, that will be a much more sort of wisdom of the crowd, like open market thing. And since we can't, whole GMs to actually do that in any meaningful way, then we're left with the final piece of the puzzle, which is sort of our own evaluation of the player. And I think that's fine. I think you can put your own evaluation of the player in there and say, look, this guy's great. I think given his contract and given his age, that he should be near the top of this list. I don't need to get into the idea that. Dallas is completely married to Luka Doncic and pretty much not interested in trading him at all for reasons that even extend beyond the basketball court sometime. So there's that perspective. And then the other thing, as I said, is this bias toward the young players where you automatically assume you're getting the young players for 10 or 15 years. I think that's the other thing that it's like, well, and in the opposite extreme is given to these mercenary type players. We don't know Kawhi Leonard won't, won't re-sign in Toronto. Just a year ago, we thought it was a fait accompli that Mr. Paul George was going to go to LA. So, and he's he's in Oklahoma City and playing better than ever and the Thunder may very well be the second best team in the West. So we don't that that's that's sort of my issue with the column or the idea with with the way it's executed. And then if you look at the dunked-on approach, I think the dunked-on approach to me is just much cleaner and much more pure in terms of the criteria, which is who would you rather have going forward? You don't get into contracts. You don't even get into team bias or things of that nature. It's really about the ability of the player and his age and the value he's going to provide over the rest of his career it's the the draft scenario if you could have a big draft board who would you grab today okay so one of the themes across all of these lists was people having ben simmons very high and the idea that ben simmons is going to have an mvp peak and i've been on record somewhere talking about this last year but i wanted to reintroduce it here today on this episode And that is the idea that it is extremely unlikely for Ben Simmons to improve a heck of a lot as a player going forward into the heart of his career. Now it's possible, just keep that in mind as I go through what I'm about to say, it's possible, but it's unlikely. And the reason it's unlikely is because he cannot shoot the basketball. And shooting, of course, is one of the most important skills in the game. It spaces the floor, floor, it stretches defenses, it adds dimensionality to your ability to score yourself. He's fantastic in transition, and if you give him a runway, he can drive and score. And he even has he even has like a little post game. Uh, he can he can spin on the block, and he has hooks and little floaters and pushes with both hands. But he has no concept of an isolation scoring game. He cannot be a catch and shoot guy. He cannot spot up and finish. He does not space the floor, and that entire, all of those things are related to the shooting dimension. Now, when I say he can't shoot, I mean he really, really is a bad shooter for an NBA player. He is on the low end here. So in college, he took 297 free throw attempts, and he made 67% of them. And In the NBA, he's taken 503 free throw attempts, and he's made 57% of them. And if you look at his mechanics on his shot and the possibility that he might even be shooting with the wrong hand, maybe he should be shooting right-handed. Maybe that's a more natural form for him. As a free-throw shooter, he's probably living somewhere between that 57 and 67%. So let's say he's a 60% free-throw shooter at, at his age. And over the last couple of years, there hasn't been any significant, there hasn't been any growth in that category that we can tell. Okay, what about three-point shooting? He doesn't shoot threes. He just does not shoot them at all. What about shots outside 15 feet? Well, in his two seasons, or a season and a half almost, of NBA basketball, he has taken 44 shots outside of 16 feet, and he's made 12 of them. That's 27%. He's 0 for 6 this se- this year. We are talking about a player who cannot shoot the basketball. From a form, technique, analytics, any any perspective you want to shine on it, he can't shoot. And so essentially, what you're asking is you're asking for one of the greatest shooting improvements in NBA history, just for him to become a respectable shooter. Now what do we what do people think of? What kind of comparisons have I heard with respectable shooter? Well, one is Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd was a far better shooter at every point in his career, than Ben Simmons has shown in the last few years. Jason Kidd, as a 21-year-old rookie, shot 70% from the line, and he took threes. He made 27% of them. By the time he was 23, he made 37% of his threes, taking three a game, so it's uh, 165 threes. He took a bunch of threes. He was around 70%. That kind of shooter, and if you look at the way he shot, his technique, where the elbow was, where the release point was, the way his feet were set, things of that nature, that kind of shooter has a track record of improvement. And in fact, with Kid, by the time he was 24 in 1998, he hit 80% of his free throws, would go on to become a 79% career free throw shooter, and at the end of his career, constantly in the 80s. And of course, as a 3 point shooter he was really low 30s from that point on and then by the time he got to Dallas and improved his you know improved his accuracy and worked with Dirk Nowitzki he even had seasons his best season was 2010 at 43% and people think about that and they think oh Ben Simmons can do that and it's like well number 1 he's starting from a significantly lower floor on the building and number 2 Even if he, like, this is considered great improvement. Even if he can, even if he's able to make these strides, and 10 years from now, he has improved as much as kid has improved. To me, from a broad strokes perspective, statistically, that's going to put him closer to kid earlier in his career than kid late in his career. And so, if you said you get Ben Simmons right now, plus 22 year old Jason Kidd's jumper. Is he an MVP player? To me, the answer is no. Is he a top 10 player with how good he is at defense and other areas? Possibly. Sure. Another guy people look at is Rajon Rondo, and they see that Rondo shot 35% in his last three seasons from downtown. They think, oh, anybody can do this. But again, Rondo started from a higher floor on the building. Even in college, he was 28 of 99 on three-pointers from the college stripe. That's not very good but that's a guy shooting them and having some ability to make them, unlike Ben Simmons. In his first couple seasons in the NBA, again, 26 of 96 from downtown, and this is better than Ben Simmons. So Rajon Rondo right now, 60-something percent free-throw shooter, 35 percent three-point shooter, probably at best, constantly gets wide-open three-point looks, starting from a better place than Simmons, considered a player who has improved in that area and he's been doing it for a decade There seems to be an idea that anybody can just become a three-point shooter because you see players like brooke lopez suddenly adding the three-point shot to their repertoire again it gets into the biomechanics of the motion the the uh, sort of the acuity of the shooter, right? The dexterity of the shooter. Brooke Lopez was a 76% free throw shooter in college as a seven-footer. That's spectacular. That historically tells you that this is a guy who can hit mid-range shots. In fact, as a 20-year-old rookie, Lopez hit 44% of his 102 attempts outside of 16 feet. That's really, really good outside shooting. So what's happening with these players is the the analytics movement has said, don't take a 20 footer, take a 24 footer. And yes, it's a harder shot, but they already have, they have the package. They have the shell to to make that happen, to bake that pie, right? The shell is sitting there. They just need to go from the eight inch pie to the 12 inch pie. This metaphor made more sense in my head when it started and it's just turned into a disaster. So let's not speak of this again and completely move on. I apologize. I don't know what got into me. Uh, It's pie season. That's what got into me. Just thinking about pies. What's your favorite pie? Give me your top five pies on Twitter, and I'll just make it sound like it was an intended segue into a pie conversation. Where were we? Were we talking about basketball? Let's talk about some more basketball. Okay, the other player I really wanted to discuss in this conversation is Donovan Mitchell. And Donovan Mitchell ranked very high both on the dunked-on list and I think he was 20th, as I said, on Simmons' list. But there's an extremely bad omen right now for Donovan Mitchell. Last year, let let me use my uh, version, my model of BPM, which again is trying to capture skill, if you will, goodness. Outside of team-dependent value, so it's a really nice tool to be able to use for player development because it's not going to zigzag as hard as someone who's put in a beautiful situation when they're a rookie and in their third year traded to a team where they have less value. You're gonna you're gonna get more consistent uh, growth. You're gonna get a better perspective of growth. So with Mitchell last year uh, in this model, he was plus one point eight very good rookie season as we all know he and Tatum and the aforementioned Ben Simmons were fantastic this year he's 0.5 that is a cause for concern because number one that means he's kind of around a neutral level impact player which isn't great this is not like a guy going from plus four to plus three or something like that it's going in the wrong direction when there's still a lot of room to improve, in other words. Number two, the degree of the drop is concerning. It's not a couple tenths of a point or something like that. Right now, it is over a point. It's closer to a point and a half. And there haven't been many drops like that in NBA history using this metric. And again, this metric for me in my database goes all the way back to the shot clock. There have been... Only 50 seasons, 50 player seasons in all of NBA history where someone under the age of 23, so I'm expanding the criteria here not to put Donovan in a phone booth because that's a bad habit. All of these, you know, the, the cutoff is exactly where the player is is going to give us a warped picture. We, we need some looser criteria to be able to view the group of related players that we want to actually know something about. So, in this case, let's look at guys under 23. It's a nice cutoff point. Let's look at guys who have declined in this model. That means declined in any way in their BPM from one season to the next, under 23. And let's look at guys, finally, who, in that season they declined, have a BPM under 1. There's only 49 In NBA history, only 49 seasons that fit that bill. Among those 49 seasons, I think the interesting question is who ended up having the highest peak? Who ended up exhibiting this pattern of a strong season when they were very young? Again, not even their first season, just when they were young, under 23, including 23. And how good did they end up being? That's basically what we're trying to figure out here. Is it A bad omen is it problematic for Mitchell to start where he started come in on that floor of the building and then decline to this degree and drop back to the particular story that he dropped back to so first of the high peak players of this group Brad Doherty Steve Nash and Kevin Love All of them declined because they were injured. They were injured in their, In Nash and Love were injured when they were 24. So they had a good 23-year-old season, and then they dropped back when they were 24, and then ended up later on getting better and better and achieving all NBA, or in the case of Nash, uh, he won an MVP at his peak. Okay, what about some other players? Terrell Brandon exhibits a similar pattern The only problem with Brandon is he wasn't a starter. So you're talking about a guy playing, he actually barely made the minutes cut off when I filtered their criteria in my database. And so that leaves us with the following guys who have exhibited this pattern earlier in their career. Marcus Camby, Gilbert Arenas, these are the, the following guys with the highest, they went on to have the highest peak of these 50 players. Marcus Camby, Gilbert Arenas, Boris Diaw, Karan Butler, Jameer Nelson, Gordon Hayward, Michael Finley, Luau Deng, Richard Jefferson, Moses Malone, Adrian Dantley, Drew Holiday, and Elvin Hayes. Did I, did I just like switch into a Chicago accent in the middle of that? I, I don't know what's going on. I suppose that was like a little, it was like Luel Luel Deng, Luel Deng. It was like a little, like a a Dennis, kind of Dennis Farina. If you guys don't know who Dennis Farina is out there, go go watch the Midnight Run. Um, This has been a strange podcast. Anyway, where was I? Let me quickly go through each of these just to put a little more color on this. In the case of Camby, he went from plus 1.3 to plus point three and then right back to plus one point eight. But he's a defensive guy. His peak was defensively driven. His game was defensively driven. And so it seems disingenuous or inapplicable to try to compare. It's like an apples to oranges comparison. Mitchell's not only an offensive guy, but if anything, he's an offensively driven scorer and he's a small. I think his height has to play in here a little bit. Gilbert Arenas who ended up with a peak of plus 4.5 in this model, which is quite quite respectable, he went from uh, plus 2.2 in his promising uh, young season to plus 0. 0.3 in the next season. So similar to Mitchell. Mitchell's 1.8 to 0. 0.5. Gilbert is 2.2 to 0. 0.3, even larger. The problem is Arenas had an injury that year. I think it was an abdominal injury. And If you look at the time period when he was injured, his play dropped off significantly. When he was healthy, it didn't drop off at all. So that was entirely due to injury. Just like Steve Nash's drop-off, just like Kevin Love's drop-off. We can erase all of these people for health reasons. Michael Finley was injured. Luol Deng was injured. And on and on and on. Everyone I mentioned was injured except... For a handful of players. Boris Diaz won. Boris Diaw peaked that season, never got better. That was the magical 2006 Phoenix Sun season. Marcus Camby, again, he's a defensive guy. I think maybe the best comparisons here, that that really leaves us with Karan Butler, Jameer Nelson, and Drew Holiday. Everyone else is... We can chalk up to injury. So this pattern of having a good first year or a good, again, we expanded the filter, a good young season, and then dropping off some reasonable amount that's even in the ballpark of what we're seeing with Mitchell right now, and then going on to have a good peak. What kind of peak are we talking about? Karan Butler, Jameer Nelson, Michael Finley, Drew Holiday. And, and Drew Holiday has some defensive chops that I'm not sure Donovan Mitchell can ever match. And it's even a stretch to include Drew Holiday in this list. He, he barely qualifies for the kind of pattern we're seeing with Mitchell. Part of his small decline was in the 2012 lockout season. But I wanted to cast a reasonably large net here. So we could demonstrate how rare this is for players to exhibit this pattern and then become stars down the road. So there you have it. It's, it's not a doomsday scenario for jazz fans or for Mitchell, but to me it is an enormous omen portending the future. Basically suggesting it's going to be hard for this guy to play like a star that borderline all-star, maybe making some all-star teams that might still be in play, but these patterns are not the kind of patterns you see from great players going forward. So I, I don't think he has a high ceiling going forward, and I think that diminishes his long-term value as a prospect. If you're saying, well, is it possible that this is just his shooting slump? I, I went through and did some calculations. And if you take his three point shooting and bring it exactly to where it was last season, he's still under plus one in the metric. So this is not just a function of him having a shooting slump. It's the all around game, right? His passing, his passer rating as a rookie was five. It's four and a half now. His creation is stagnated. It's right, right around where it was or a little below. It's the whole thing for me. It's the fact that he's struggling finishing, Uh, He doesn't seem to be slicing up the defense. And so sophomore slumps are okay. But when you stack up the pattern of what we're seeing and you look at other players who injury aside, first of all, there aren't that many players who have done this and a lot of them are injured. That's one takeaway. And the second is when you move injury aside, there are only a handful of players who turned out pretty well. And that pretty well is not what we think of as A star ceiling or anything like that. So there you have it. As always, I want to thank my patrons for making this possible. They support the show at patreon.com slash thinking basketball, and they've made it possible for me to finally start a YouTube channel, which I did recently, and I have a lot more video content planned for 2019. That YouTube channel is also called Thinking Basketball. I try to make it easy. Thinking Basketball podcast, Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, Thinking Basketball book. If you like the content I put out, you want more, please consider going over to Patreon. It's patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Until then, as always, I hope you guys are having a great day. Thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you in the next episode and in the next year. Happy New Year.